everybody and welcome to JTV. Today we are joined from Israel by Rabbi and Professor Joshua Berman, who is the Professor of Bible Studies at Baralan University in Israel. He's also an author and uh, we were delighted a few years ago to do a fantastic video with Professor Berman on, uh, it was a short animated video on JTV, and it was entitled Six Big Political Ideas That the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, Gave to the World. Um, Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for joining us here today from Israel. How are you doing? Good, and thank you, Ali, for this invitation and, uh, and this opportunity to work together again with JTV. Well, you are a real groundbreaking uh, writer and, and author on matters to do with uh, understanding the Bible and dealing with biblical criticism, and it's a real honor to have you um, on here today. And I just want to jump into some, some of the big questions uh, around uh, these areas. Um, we've got Passover coming up, which of course um, commemorates the, the exodus from Egypt. And I was actually sitting next to a professor from uh, Yale a few weeks ago who was telling me there's zero archaeological evidence, there's just zero evidence full stop for um, the exodus that is documented and chronicled in the Torah from occurring, no Egyptian um, documentation of it, uh, no archaeological evidence. Um, what, what do you say to someone who, if someone came up to you and said that? Oh, I think they're right, but I think they're asking the wrong question. That is, I think that um, uh, there's two ways to, to go about this issue of determining evidence for the exodus based on the archaeological record. One way is the which way is the way in which most classical scholars, such as uh, your your uh, acquaintance at Yale, which is to say, okay, we are going to read our Torah and see what it says, and it talks about Hebrews and Israelites and Moses and and uh, slaves and plagues. Okay, now let's go to our Egyptian record, which is quite extensive, and let's see, mm, no slaves, you know, upping and outing, no plagues, no Moses no Hebrews, no Israelites, case closed. But um, I think that there's another way to go about it that one has to do as well. And that is, rather than asking, what does the Egyptian record know about what's in the Torah, which seems to be very little, what does the Torah know about the Egyptian record? That is to say, if we see many references uh, to events, even specific events, specific texts, specific phrases, specific images uh, from a very specific time period. And we find those in the Egyptian record, and then we find them in the Torah and only in the Torah, and not, you know, we're not widely around the ancient Near East. Well, that's also evidence. Uh, and that's, that's really where, where uh, uh, that's where I think we begin to see things in a different light. But what if, if someone responds to that and said, well, Okay, but then does that doesn't that mean that we we believe any any single documentation of um, a, a, an experience a religious experience certainly um, one is you saying one is enough? No, no. What I'm saying is 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 that is that what we find in the Torah is a, a very wide net of references to a specific period, the period of Ramses the uh, second, who's Ramses the Great probably the greatest uh, of all Egyptian pharaohs. And that we can see that the Torah um, uh, invokes images, phrases, entire texts from his period, uh, I would say engaging in, in what I call, or what really sociologists call cultural appropriation. It's where 
you take the 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 um, uh, uh, the propaganda uh, um, uh, of your oppressor and you make it your own. Um, in just the same way, speaking in American context, one group might say Black Lives Matter, and then a counter group says, "Well, Blue Lives Matter." It's not by accident that they say we're starting a Blue Lives Matter movement. There's no meaning to Blue Lives Matter without Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, and, and the Torah engages in the same the same sort of thing. I mean, I'll just give one simple example of this on the level of a phrase, though it's it, as I say, it, it's it's much wider than that as well. Uh, it's a phrase that we're all familiar with, just from sitting around the Seder table. And that is that the Almighty took Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Yad Chazakav is run to Yad, which is a biblical phrase, mostly from uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, now, this phrase, you would just think, yeah, well, you know, the Torah is kind of engaging in a little bit of hyperbole about the greatness of God. But there's something far more specific going on in the use of that phrase, because if you look elsewhere in the Bible, when God does, you know, miraculous things, it doesn't use that phrase, Yad Chazakav Zonatuyah, mighty hand and outstretched arm. It's really only with regard to, <coughs> pardon me, the, uh, the, the events of the Exodus. And this, this is remarkable because when we look in the Egyptian record, what we find is that the pharaohs of the, um, what we call the Egyptian New Kingdom, uh, roughly 1500 to 1200 BCE, which coincides with what tradition might say is the period of the enslavement, uh, and which is the greatest period of Egyptian history, we find that routinely the actions of the pharaohs are described as his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. So if you might say the pharaoh smote the Libyans with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, the pharaoh one day went hunting and he bagged 120 elephants with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Once upon a time, the pharaoh was walking and he came across a diamond the size of a fist. And it was the largest diamond ever found that he picked it up with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Well, then you realize that when the Torah is saying that, that, that God took Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, it's robbing the thunder of the pharaohs. It's trying to out-pharaoh the pharaohs. It's engaging in cultural appropriation. Uh, and this is true of a very wide range of, uh, of texts and images uh, and phrases from that period. Um, and so, you know, one has to say, well, how does the Torah know all this and when did it know it? Uh, and it turns out that, that um, uh, None of these large uh, inscriptions that, that you find in Egypt ever made their way out of Egypt. So only if you were in Egypt would you be able to know this stuff. Um, and, and some of these uh, texts that the Torah uh, uh, invokes, particularly something called uh, the Kaddish inscriptions of Ramses II, which details his greatest achievement in a battle that he had. And the Torah kind of takes that and, and uses it to describe the, the Exodus itself, in Exodus 14 and 15, uh, the crossing of the sea. Um, after Ramses' time, nobody in Egypt paid any attention to this. So this suggests that, that, that uh, someone was in, his, was, was in Egypt at this time and something happened to them that they thought was like really, really worth celebrating and was some type of overthrow of Ramses himself and wrote the Torah in this way, uh, uh, apparently with all of that in mind. So that's what I mean by, by looking in the Egyptian record and seeing what the Torah knows about it. That, that really is fascinating. And I want to come back later to this matter of the context of when the Torah was, was given and written. Um, I'd like to talk about the question of, does it matter? 
whether or not these events actually occurred. I, I personally believe it does. I think it, they, they happened. Um, but there are some people, um, perhaps of different Jewish religious denominations, of other religious denominations, or those who just are more of the traditional bent, who might just say, look, these are stories that have moral lessons from them. Why does it matter? Even if they say it, it is actually a divine document, um, what would you say to someone that says it, it, it's just irrelevant whether they literally occurred? Yeah, you know, there's, there's literally, and then the, the, at the core, I think that, that it's very important that these events happened. I mean, by, by important, I mean, it's important for the coherence of Jewish thought. Uh, the, the most basic, the very first phrase of the Ten Commandments is not, I am the Lord your God who created your soul. I am not the Lord. It's not, I am Lord the God who created you or created the world. It's, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, the house of bondage. Uh, the whole sine qua non of Israel's relationship with God is gratitude. Gratitude for having been redeemed as slaves. And if that, if that, if that uh, event didn't take place, then there's no gratitude. There's no reason for that. There's no difference between us and anyone else. Uh, and it would not make sense, therefore, for the Ten Commandments, the, 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 uh, the cornerstone of the covenant with Israel, to be based on the fact that, Israel, that God took Israel out of Egypt. It should just say, listen, I created you, and therefore, because I'm your creator, but that, that's not the direction that it goes in. So in order for it to have coherence, there has to have been a liberation event. Now, did every single little detail happen the way that the Torah said? So I'm not even sure that, 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 that religious Jews are required to believe that. Um, uh, rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, Rav Cook, the first chief rabbi of Palestine, he said um, something I think is very important and that a lot of religious people don't necessarily uh, fathom and probably think intuitively uh, must be other than what he says. He says, uh, when, the, when, the, uh, uh, when the Torah, or the Tanakh generally, um, writes a story, it has in mind to create a certain imprint on the soul of the listener or the reader. When the Torah feels that just the presentation of the facts themselves will deliver that imprint, will stir a person in the right way, bring him to the right awareness of issues, then the Torah just gives facts but when the, sometimes the presentation of facts might fall a little bit dry, in just the same way as for us, you know, you can, walk a doc, you can watch a documentary of something or just, you know, unedited film of something that might create some impression, but a historical novel based, you know, largely on facts will stir you much more. So Rav Cook says when the Torah feels that just the facts themselves won't suffice in creating the impression on the soul, the reader or the listener, the Torah has no qualms about embellishing the story, and will add things around so that the core, the core of the events is always is always uh, is always true, and is always factually accurate. Uh, uh, but some, the Torah is a book of hortatory; it's a book of, of 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 imparting lessons, and so it has no qualms about embellishing things. So where does the core event end? When does the where does the embellishment begin? So I think Rav Cook would say that that depends on 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 the story. And it depends on whether the Torah felt in that particular story that the facts as they were, uh, were, were, were were sufficient or whether the facts needed to have something else so that people would be, would be stirred. What's important about the Torah ultimately is that it's from God or it's being told to us by a prophet. And we want to learn what either God or the prophet or Ezra the Sofer, whoever it is, uh, has to tell us and, and how it is that they want to guide us. Um, so that I, I view it as, you know, the, 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 core, the events all have a core that is true, uh, that is factually, factually accurate. And if there's some embellishment here or there, 
then that's that's the Torah's prerogative because that's how I'm going to get the inspiration that I need. And how do you deal with um, the claims that there are, because this is quite, quite a common claim in, in uh, biblical criticism, claims that there are contradictory narratives in the Torah, meaning that there are different authors? Oh, um, yes, there absolutely are. Um, um, I thought we were going to speak tonight about, uh, about uh, the Exodus, but I'm happy to answer that question. I thought, I thought it might be worth doing a bit of broad biblical criticism questions. Mm, right, right, right. Um, yes, so um, let me put it this way. There are, there are uh, stories, even within the Torah itself, uh, versions of stories uh, that don't line up squarely with one another. Um, um, probably the most, the most blatant examples of these are when Moses is retelling uh, the accounts of the desert in the book of Deuteronomy, Sefer Dvarim, and then you look at the original accounts of the stories as they appear in Exodus and Numbers, Shmot and Bamidbar, and there's a lot of details. You really have to stretch things and go like this in order to say, yeah, yeah, no, there's no contradictions. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really very different accounts. Now, the question is, once they are different accounts, how do we characterize that? To call something a contradiction, um, you know, I don't think that there's any connotation of the word contradiction that, that isn't pejorative and negative. Nobody wants to be contradictory. So I wouldn't call them contradictions. What I would say is that what we need to do is to understand the, uh, the literary poetics that guide this text or that guide ancient texts and those that guide modern texts. You see, what's happened here is that scholars in, in the area of Bible studies, uh, this is their original sin. Their original sin is that Bible critics say, listen, I know how to read a text and I know how I would write a text. And I would never write a book that had an account of a story one way, you know, let's say in Shmot and Bamibar, and then tell it a different way in Dvarim. It, for me, as a modern, that would be contradictory. That would be incoherent. The question is whether literary aesthetics and poetic conventions are universal, and therefore any bright person, me or you or any, any Bible critic, has access to them, and they are universal, and they are valid at all times and all places, so that we can immediately tell whether something is contradictory or not, or whether, alternatively, uh, no, just as in many, many other areas of aesthetics, we know that things change. You know, we look at museum pieces, you know, and how they painted people, you know, 300, 400 years ago, like, that's beautiful, they thought that was beautiful? I don't know, that doesn't look so beautiful to me. You know, or we listen to music from different periods. Ah, music is amazing, amazing. And that, meh. But you know that, you know, in another time or in another place, people went gaga over this. So we clearly see that, that, that uh, uh, aesthetics change. And we know now for a fact that in ancient times, people wrote with a different set of literary conventions than they do now. Uh, I just, I mentioned before, these things called the Kaddish inscriptions of Ramses II, okay? You wanna talk about contradictions? Let me tell you about contradictions, okay? Ramses II comes back from this enormous battle that he has, he comes back to Egypt, and he plasters Egypt with accounts of this battle. And in one and the same place, on one and the same wall, he will have up to three different accounts of the battle that, that our modern eyes contradict one another. And believe you me, no one in ancient Egypt said, Ramses, you're contradicting yourself. Or Ramses, you must be three authors. No, they didn't do that. Because what was happening was that Ramses was, was, was trying to portray different lessons, different aspects of what this battle was about. 
In all the battles, the primary details are the same. There's lots of little details that get changed around because in one account, Ramses wanted to talk about the greatness of his god, Amun. And in the second account, he wanted to talk about his greatness on the battlefield. And in the third account, he wanted to talk about the escapades of one of his, one of his uh, uh, chief brigades. So in each account, he, he structures the battle and makes details that highlight the individual messages that he wants to bring out. Now, you and I would never write a text that way, but that's how ancients wrote. And, and everyone agrees, all Egyptologists agree, you know, Ramses is the one who, who authorized the, uh, the writing of, uh, of these inscriptions. So there's one author, even though there's different accounts with different details. Wow, that is fascinating. And what, um, what about the, uh, the argument that the Bible was just taking ideas from the ancient Near East and perhaps, or, or narratives from the ancient Near East and, you know, remodeling them? Yeah, I think that's true. You know, we're, 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 we Jews, we're, we've always been a small people and we've always been, you know, a minority in something larger going on around us, which means that we've always been exposed to what's going on around us. And, you know, even, even I would say the great rabbis of Israel, you know, speak about this in Kabbalistic terms, that it's up to the Jewish people to uh, uh, bring in the sparks of holiness that are out there, redeem ideas. But even if you're not into Kabbalah and sparks and things like that, um, um, the Torah is always going to be engaged in an ongoing conversation and polemic with surrounding ideas. And so sometimes you will have images, you will have tropes, uh, 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 storylines that are adopted because they were very popular in the ancient world and the Torah will tweak them to teach a different lesson. Uh, the, the best example of this is the flood, okay? In Genesis six to nine. Uh, the, 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 the story of the flood in Genesis six to nine uh, is remarkably similar to a Mesopotamian version of the flood, uh, down to the birds that are involved, you know, ravens and, and doves, you know, I mean, down to that level. Um, um, but there's some enormous differences, ideological differences between the Mesopotamian flood version and the biblical one. The chief among them is why did the gods or why did God wipe out humanity? Uh, believe it or not, in the Mesopotamian version, the reason is this because there were too many people on earth and they were disturbing the God's nap. That's what it says. And so in order to get in a good schluff in the afternoon, the gods wiped out humanity. And, then, and, then, and, 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 and at the end of the story, the Mesopotamian version, the gods are in a quandary. On the one hand, they need human beings on this earth in order to build them temples and bring them sacrifices. On the other hand, they make so much noise. So what do you do? So the Mesopotamians decided, okay, we'll bring people back onto earth, but we will limit their reproductive capacities. We'll make some women infertile. We'll make some women priestesses so they don't have kids. We'll make some stillborns and it'll all work out. Hopefully it'll all get balanced. Long comes the Torah and says, you know what? God can be very destructive, but it will never be because he, he needs more nap time. It will only be if humans have not lived up to, their, to, the, to his expectations of them. If, they're, if, they're, if their deeds are worthy of being severely punished, only then will God severely punish them. And the best part is that when Noah descends, disembarks from the ark, disembark, ark, uh, it, it says there, this is amazing. The blessing given to Noah is be fruitful and multiply. You can't have a more ringing endorsement about the value of human life, totally contra to what you get in the Mesopotamian version. So yeah, so you find some similarities between you know, the Torah stories and, and stories that were you know, 
uh, Akharant at that time in the ancient world. But it's in order to polemicize with them and to bring out higher truths about how God functions in the world. Well, I was well, about, I was to, about say, to say, I think, I think part of what's brilliant about the Torah is that, is that by comparing, by comparing what, it what it says to other Near Eastern uh, uh, morals moral or narratives of the, of the time, you can actually you can learn from them timeless lessons, lessons that, that, that uh, uh, God, God wants, wants us to, to adhere mm -hmm. to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's no, I don't think people, some people in religious circles, Jewish, Christian, get very nervous when you start comparing it to other contemporary belief systems or narratives or, or, or texts at the time and, and I because because in what I think what it implies to them is that the, the, the Torah is a is God's document is not a timeless document but it but that need need not be the case um, and I think uh, so I if I can relate to that Ali okay because I know it, it's, it's a concern um, is the Torah eternal um, I thought many people will say the Torah is just, you know, it, it's a divine document. It's unrelated to all this Mishadas going on around. And any attempt to say, ah, you see, this story is like that story, and this took this truck. Oh, and Ramses, and you got that here as well. It all brings the Torah down. Um, to that, I would say that the way in which I am presenting things here is the way that Maimonides, the Ramam, looked at it. The Ramam, in many, many places, uh, in the third, in the third uh, uh, part of the, of the Guide to the Perplexed, where he tries to provide uh, rationale for the mitzvot, for the commandments, very often, and especially with regard to things having to do with the tabernacle, the temple, and uh, uh, the sacrificial uh, uh, offerings that we bring, will often say, ah, I see what the Torah is doing here is very similar to what I read in the books that I have, the Rambam says, about ancient uh, idolatrous customs. And what we see is the Torah is taking what Israelites might have been familiar with and tweaking it to bring it to a higher level. Okay? And he says, the Rambam says at the end of the Moran Nebuchim, the guide to the perplexed. Oh, I wish that I had more books about the ancient Near East, because the more that I would understand about the ancient context in which the Torah was given, the more I would understand the rationale for its different mitzvot. This is what he says. Wow. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't know, actually, you know, you said, Ali, rightly, that many people will say, wait a minute, we have to believe that the Torah is eternal. I don't know of a single source, rabbinic source, okay? Of course, all rabbinic sources believe that the Torah, you know, is, is, is eternally binding and can teach us eternally. I do not know of a single rabbinic source that says, and because the Torah is eternal, we are not allowed to ever think about its, its relationship to other things that are going on. In fact, I think that there are literally hundreds of examples that you can find scattered throughout rabbinic commentary, where they say, oh, what the Torah is saying here is because at the time the practice was ABC. The eternal nature of the Torah stems from the fact that many of its ideas are eternal and that in different forms, it, it teaches us eternally. You know, we say that the Torah has, has 70 faces, shivim panim la Torah, 70 facets to it. So I take that to mean that, that uh, there are some aspects, some facets that become more evident in some periods than others. So there were some things that were more immediately uh, understandable to the, the generation of those that came out from Egypt. I think this is what the Rambam is saying in regard to the perplexed. And then there are other aspects, let's say Kabbalistic aspects that only came out you know, with the development of halakha, you know, the expansion of halakha, let's put it that way, uh, uh, in the Middle Ages. And there are probably some other aspects that there were, you know, time and, and, and place 
sensitive in other ways. So we have many aspects of the Torah that are eternal and some aspects of the Torah that, that, that are more evident, more timely, speak with greater clarity in one generation or another. Absolutely. I, I think uh, I'm also a big fan of, I, I assume you know him, Rabbi David Foreman from Aleph Beta, who often talks about uh, the context in which the Bible um, was, was given. Um, and uh, I, I think it, it, all it does is enrich one's understanding of it. So in that, in that light, um, could you talk to our viewers? I mean, you did this on your short video with us, um, but can you touch on in other ways, the ways in which the Bible, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible was a radical document, if you consider the context in which it was given? Yeah, you know, when you, to us today, uh, the notion of, of equality uh, is very central. Uh, all citizens are equal. Uh, this, they could not have an idea that was more foreign to the ancient frame of mind. Um, you know, just think of, you know, the, the kind of society that we see in the stories of Yosef. Okay, so, you know, at the top you have a paro, and then you have a potifar, you know, a kind of a gentry that's under there. And then the way at the bottom you have slaves. And the sense you get is that Pharaoh is going to be a Pharaoh forever, and Potiphar is going to be rich forever, and slaves are going to be slaves forever, unless you're Joseph. But you know that aside, uh, there's no there's no social mobility, and and this is true. The the kind of deep deep entrenchment of hierarchy and stratification is true, uh, as we said in Megillat Esther last week, from one end of the world to the other. And it isn't merely because they didn't, they hadn't yet thought of the idea of equality. Like if it's someone had only introduced the idea, then they would have said, oh, that sounds so noble, let's go for that. No, they would have said, that sounds absolutely horrid because, because in order for the, the, the undergirding, the underlying assumption in all of these cultures was in order for society to function properly, people need to know their place. People need to know their place. And once you have, hey, you know, you can be anything you want, you can move up or you can be brought down, then that's just gonna to lead to the disintegration of society. The Torah is the first document of political thought that seeks to um, um, dilute political and economic power and to raise the level of, of the common person. And this is seen across a wide range of, of, of endeavors its view of political power, its economic policies, uh, uh, its theology. I mean, those are all headlines, but th those can all be fleshed out. It's fascinating. And again, I strongly recommend you watch the short video um, when you have the time. Yeah, um, and I, I would just say, I've, I've written about this at length in a book called uh, Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought. Absolutely, and, and I strongly, we'll put a link to, for people to get that uh, book in our video description. I think one of the, um, does it ever bother you where you'll have people who really don't engage with history of religion or consider it to be particularly important in society, where they don't even, there's no, there's, there's no real acknowledgement or understanding of how much their value system, the average Westerner's value system today, even secular Westerner, it comes from values first articulated in the Torah. Does it bother me? Yeah. Is that the question? I suppose so, yeah. No, no, it doesn't bother me. I mean, look, I, I, I look to, uh, to spread light to the extent that I can, um, you know, but if people don't know, it's not their fault they don't know. Very few people know about this stuff. 
but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a very brilliant professor at, uh, at, uh, at Harvard named Eric Nelson, who documents how the early modern political thinkers, uh, especially the founding fathers of the United States, I mean, they had a Torah open in front of them. And, you know, their ideas of, of uh, uh, you know, how kings abuse their power uh, uh, are, are all taken from there and many other ideas as well. Um, so, you know, anyone that, that makes the attempt to look into the origins of uh, modern political thought is able to see how it traces back, not so much to the Greeks or no more, no, 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 no less to the Greeks than, 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 than to the Torah itself, too. Well, Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us again on JTV. Rabbi Professor Joshua Berman, um, you will put some links to videos and books that he's written uh, in the description. Thank you so much for your time and for appearing on JTV and happy Passover. Okay, yes, right. A Chag Sameach, a Merry Passover to, uh, to, all, to all the viewers as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.